many of us in this world find ourselves searching for ways to feel more alive. We move through our lives day after day, living through the same repetitive cycles and the same stressful patterns that often leave us feeling defeated, underappreciated, or unfulfilled. But what if there were a different way to perceive life? What if out there we were able to find the keys to a happy, healthy, and fulfilling reality in the lives that we're living right here, right now? For those of us who are looking for a way to transform our lives, for those of us who are looking to fully live in this moment, to change how we feel, how we perceive the world, and awaken to a better reality so we can fully live this life. This is the Live This Life Podcast. And I'm your host, Heath Cummings. I'm here to inspire you to ask yourself the question, are you living or are you killing time? What's going on, everyone? Today, I wanted to jump into a fascinating study of mass consciousness. And this was one of the very first things that I remember hearing about in my earlier days of seeking knowledge on what consciousness was and how our brain works and really our places related to all of it. When I was going through a huge bout with my PTSD that resulted from a series of events in my life that included a few things from my previous line of work, coupled with some personal things like surviving cancer, and I was just trying to make sense of it all. And I searched a lot in the beginning into religion and philosophy and psychology And I learned so much about many different aspects of our world that I never knew existed or even really even considered at all. And all of it stemmed from my desire to know more about me and why I was going through the things that were showing up in my life. And more importantly, how to get through some of those toughest times without meds because eventually when I gained the strength to literally reach out and ask for help, the only thing that was thrown back in my face immediately and if if, if there was anything it was come in for an appointment sit down talk here's your prescription and that just didn't didn't resonate with me at all for many reasons Um, and don't get me wrong I'm not really particularly against meds per se Um, I think that some people need them in certain circumstances whether it's chemical imbalances or whatever's going on Um, so I'm definitely not knocking meds But I also know that long-term solutions don't come in a bottle and that sometimes that that road can really lead to more harm than good. Um, I have a huge distrust for pharmaceutical companies. I have a huge, huge distrust for mainstream medicine from my own personal experiences. I've had two separate doctors during my cancer struggle. Almost cost me my life. If I didn't listen to my gut and I listened to them, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Um, my own wife's doctors in recent years have failed her on two separate occasions. They threw a ton of pills at her that nearly cost her her life and her current health situation that she's going through right now. Mainstream doctors completely just misdiagnosed her, told her she had this condition that was just BS. She went to a holistic doctor. They, they first checked her blood, found out a whole bunch of stuff that was, that was not right. So she's going through treatment for that right now. And it was just stuff that mainstream medicine has failed me in my life and those closest to me. So I do have a huge distrust, but I do know that there's many schools of thought on this and similar subjects. And I know that one of the biggest ones is philosophy of so many different things, but philosophy about philosophies about consciousness and the certain things that we have in our modern lives that really screw with our psychology, with our consciousness. And philosophy was one of those things that I studied the most of it. It was probably one of, if not the biggest area of study that I focused on through pretty much everything, even up until today. Um, and I really feel like it's the the incubation area for the way that we can look at the world in the, the, like almost like a think tank of what's possible. People make informed hypotheses or theories on how the world or reality of the universe works and why things happen the way that they do. And the thing about philosophy when we create those theories is that it doesn't necessarily mean when they come up with one of those theories that it's fact. It's just a possibility. We need to look into it more. And the great thing about a lot of different philosophies is it doesn't get indoctrined by mainstream institutions like religious institutions or educational institutions where things can get completely distorted to fit whatever agenda it is of that particular institution. 
And a lot of those places will try to often discredit or suppress some philosophies because they don't fall in line with the ethics of a particular bias that that institution might have. And no matter how true that information might be, um, the theories, the philosophies, the hypothesis that, that come out of all of that conversation, no matter how true they might be, they'll just get suppressed, which is a huge, huge shame for everybody, for the human race. You know, and that in turn results in the loss of knowledge. Um, and really, I feel it's like one of the biggest forms of ignorance. And I feel like that is the number one flaw of all of our human history, really. Um, that and probably money. But, it, it, you know, the suppression of knowledge for the sake of power and having that power held by the very greedy few has held us back, I think, as a species. And when we look into these, into philosophy, and especially the one we're talking about today, there also has to be a balance between what is the fact of a certain philosophy and what's also turned into like a legendary version of the philosophy. Because in doing some of the research for this, I even discovered some discrepancies based on, uh, you know, the, the whimsical legend that comes out of some of this stuff and then the actual facts of certain studies and, and what came out of it and what are the actual facts of a certain circumstance. Now, in studying philosophy, I I focused mostly on metaphysics. So, so let me back up. There's five different branches of philosophy, which are uh, metaphysics is number one, um, epistemology, which is the study of belief, the, the you know the true nature of of knowledge and belief and and certain circumstances behind um, you know the facts that lie behind those beliefs. And then of course, we have ethics, which are values and decision-making processes that have a, you know, a moral standard to them. Um, aesthetics, which is the beauty of things, the beauty of art, the beauty of nature, the, the general beauty of the world around us, whether it's nature or man-made. And then we have politics, um, basically how humans function within their, their societal structures. So when learning about all these things, I dove really deep into metaphysics. I thought it was one of the most interesting ones of all of them, although each one of them, when you dive in just a little bit on each one of those subjects, they have some fascinating things behind them. Um, but, you know, learning about metaphysics taught me a lot about the concepts that we were never formally taught in school. There are so many things that I feel would have been a great basis of knowledge and understanding for the world around us if we were taught these things from a younger age instead of letting us stumble across it later on in life, especially like into our 30s or 40s or beyond, it would have really helped us through some of the circumstances. Actually, I had this conversation with my brother not that long ago. Uh, I think it was around the holidays talking about the seven-year cycles. And it was something that he thought was fascinating because he kind of recognized some of the stages he went through, one that he's maybe currently in that certain seven-year cycle and recognized some patterns. And I've had that same similar conversation with other people. And these philosophies that come out in metaphysics they really, if you would have known them earlier, you might be able to identify the challenges of your life or the things that we go through as a society and a, and a, a species a lot better because you can point to a certain hypothesis about the way we work and you can almost see it play out in front of you just kind of like what the seven-year cycles do when you're aware of them. So one of the most interesting studies that I remember learning about early on um, was talking about the, the mass consciousness of an organism and it doesn't relate to humans. It relates to a study of monkeys, but it also does show that uh, different organisms can have a broader sort of mass consciousness about them. And us as the human organism, meaning us as human beings, um, are likely connected to each other in a non-physical way. And that experiment was called the 100th monkey experiment. This study was critical for the study of mass consciousness and how we as humans are potentially connected as a species like many other species are. Um, and I mean connected outside of our technology and our social networking that we happen to have now. And that we as humans, we, we can and we do have... Um, moved to levels of mass consciousness recently and in the past and will continue to do so, which is why it's so crucial for us to be mindful of the ideas and the concepts that we choose to focus on. Remember the saying, where your attention goes, energy flows. It's, it's a catchphrase that's used in a lot of positivity circles and manifestation and all that stuff. 
and it's used, it, I think it's kind of overused at this point, but it really is a powerful one. And basically it says that you know, the energy can be so important on a mass scale if the masses are focusing their attention on a certain thing, if the human organism is all focusing on a certain thing, whether it's an event or an emotion, and that energy, that dedicated energy and focused attention may have more of an effect on the world around us than we ever really considered. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Before we go on, I just wanted to mention to join us on our social media pages, Live This Life now has a Facebook, an Instagram, a TikTok, and a YouTube page. And I've been expanding my own uh, professional page on LinkedIn as well since business networking is one that I made a lot of great connections in during my career when I was in law enforcement, in our crime, and worked with a lot of people that were as overworked, if not more overworked than me. A lot of this material, I feel like, has started to resonate with people even on that, which I was kind of shocked about. But um, so many different platforms to follow a lot of the stuff from the show and we'll be posting a lot more material on all of the platforms in the upcoming year. A lot of stuff lined up, new sponsors and partners and some full-length videos, too, for YouTube. Um, so a whole bunch of stuff. And as always, give us a rating and review whatever platform you're listening on. Even if you don't want to leave comments that the world can see, even if you want to send me a private message on any one of the social media platforms, um, you can do that. If it's just a message, people send me some all the time, and I definitely encourage that. You can also shoot me an email at connect at livethislife.org. Actually, this episode was inspired by somebody sending me an email message, someone who I'll just name by their first name is Shannon. Um, they messaged me through Instagram and asked if I had heard of this study, and I totally did. Uh, it just kind of brought it all back, had a great conversation back and forth, and it really prompted me to look back on more of the stuff that I learned about this subject. So thank you, Shannon, for bringing this subject out of the archive at the back of my head, uh, because it's definitely, definitely a fascinating one. So first, let's get into what the study or experiment was, because there's a bit of legend, like I said before, that sometimes gets towed along with some of these philosophies, and you really need to separate the facts of things like this from the, the sort of fantasyful stuff that maybe makes it through when this uh, when this story is sort of told over and over. So this study, the hundredth monkey hundredth monkey experiment, kind of a tongue twister. This was a study from back in the fifties of a population of monkeys on an island off the coast of Japan. The species was called Macaca fuscata. These monkeys absolutely loved raw sweet potatoes, and some researchers who studied them had noticed that when they gave the monkeys the sweet potatoes along the beach, they would react very negatively to the sand on the potatoes. They would still eat them anyways, but you could just tell it was something that they just didn't like. They didn't like the sand on their food. So the older generations of the monkeys, they just dealt with it, while the younger ones, they were shown how to wash off the potatoes in the ocean before they ate them. And this spread amongst the younger generation of monkeys, and some of them showed the older generation who also took this on. Now, keep in mind throughout this entire thing that this island, this, this experiment was significant because the island was on a chain of islands, and they were not really close enough for any animals to go from one island to the other. They really couldn't make the, the gaps in the ocean between the two. Um, it was far enough away where they were isolated and really nothing could travel. And the humans, um, of course, they could travel you know, on boats. So the monkeys could have gotten over on, on different ships, um, but they really would have needed assistance. And the experiment, the uh, people controlling the experiment were very careful that that did not happen during their study. Now, like I said, the legend parts of the story if you were to look it up, um, are actually not parts of the study. If you look this up on some YouTube videos, you will hear that once this population went from the 99th monkey to the 100th monkey, they hit the critical mass and the idea of washing these sweet potatoes spread like wildfire to the entire population. But that simply wasn't true. It was a significant amount of them learned this skill, but it didn't just automatically jump to the entire island, the entire chain of islands. But as they watched the experiment, some significant changes did start to happen, and it wasn't just isolated to the one island. So here's where it gets interesting. It's easy to say that, you know, the monkeys had an intelligence that allows 
that sort of population to learn things from each other. They have opposable thumbs, they can grip things, and they're very closely related to humans. They have a fair level of intelligence, and they have sort of a social hierarchy. They sort of live in, in areas together. I wouldn't quite call them a pack animal, but they're um, you know in little colonies of, of animals. So you could argue that they show skills to each other, they live closely with each other, and it's spread through their little culture. So I guess if the younger monkeys learn this skill, they could show everybody what is spread to the whole island. Totally, you know, nothing magical, mystical, whimsical, or anything about that. But then, around the same time that a large mass of this society of monkeys learned this trait, and the older monkeys started to die off, the younger ones learned the skill and passed it on, so it was just sort of a generational thing that started to carry on. When the whole population really started to learn it, something significant happened. Not only did they start washing the potatoes in the ocean, they also started doing other things um, after they were shown the trick with the potatoes, like bathing themselves, and it spread, but it spread to the other islands along the chain to the same species. And then it spread to the mainland too. And no one could explain how this was happening since they were careful not to have any influence on the other populations so they could keep this experiment isolated and controlled. So how did this spread? Well, it was thought that the species is connected in sort of a non-physical way. That since they operate on the same biological and cognitive level that, uh, you know, they're little fractals of the same organism essentially kind of like your blood having individual cells each cell is its own living thing but it's part of a whole organism that is your blood now it was said that the population reached this this critical mass point where they all learn this skill and when they hit the hundredth monkey which was i guess more of a metaphor than anything that is spread like wildfire to all the other organisms of that species almost like they were all tuned in to the same station that was broadcasting the same message now, I think this got a little bit skewed from the 99th to the 100th monkey, that sort of bit of legend. But I feel like it was like the game of telephone that, uh, you know, if you ever play that in school where you write down a message, you sit in a big circle of people, you want one person whispers that message to the one next to them and they go around the circle. And by the time that message gets all the way back to the originator, it completely changes from what's written on the piece of paper. Um, so maybe the same with the study that some of the information over the years got misconstru misconstrued. Um, and that information became a little bit of a legend. Um, but I'm, I'm not, also, not just getting this information from the study itself, but also a book by Ken Keyes Jr. called The Hundredth Monkey, A Story About Social Change. And it doesn't appear true that the population hit that hundredth monkey, but it was more of a metaphor. Because really, a lot of the older ones in the population at first didn't adopt this at all as a very small percentage of them that I found in the research. But what did hold true was that it eventually spread off the isolated island and it spread to the other portions of the population on other islands. They inherited this trait as well. So how did this happen? What caused this change? How did the information magically spread to the other animals of the species without physical contact? This is where the metaphysical philosophy comes into play because we cannot explain this by our typical way of explaining things. Just like when, you know, I, I've talked about this a few times when Einstein, who was huge into theories of relativity, when he couldn't explain something, he threw a tagline on quantum entanglement and called it spooky action at a distance. They were trying to explain this the best they could with the knowledge that they had of, of the world around them uh, at the time. And most people assumed at first that there was some sort of an external factor that came into play with it all. Did someone from the study go to one of the other locations and show the other populations these tricks and sort of influence the experiment? We can't say that it, it didn't happen for sure, but it was very unlikely. You know, did a monkey swim the vast distance to the other island just to show his friends what he learned? You know, really, likelihood of that was next to zero given the facts of the experiment. So what explains it? The thought is that this organism being the species, whether it's schools of fish who swim in large structures in the same directions all at once, they can change direction, move away from predators, and it's like they're moving as a huge synchronized organism. Or birds do the same thing. We have some birds who fly in V-shapes. How do they learn these skills? How do they learn these things? Species of similar consciousness have really an unexplained connection to each other. Think about what happens when there is a natural disaster like an earthquake and you'll have entire flocks of birds 
evacuating the area? You know, what do they know? What is it that they're tuning into? I mean, that's showing some sort of a premonition, sort of a precognition of a physical event that's going to happen. And they're sensing something that we as humans don't perceive. So one important way to observe this entire study is to look at this as a paradigm shift. We all accept something as a truth if it's repeated enough. If enough people think of it and it becomes an accepted norm, then that becomes our new paradigm. I mean, take, for example, the old school thoughts of, let's say, like the Earth being the center of the universe. Or maybe even the Earth being flat. I know that one's a little controversial lately. Um, But we accepted that for so long. And we learned information and science that disproved much of what we thought. So now it's an accepted fact for most, and we've moved into a new paradigm that the earth is no longer the center of the universe. The earth is no longer flat. And we have certain viewpoints that led us to those new beliefs. One time we believed this one thing, and facts and circumstances showed up that made us believe in something else. And now it's widely accepted. Whether it's through information sharing or it's through mass consciousness. But either way, we shift the way we observe the universe. And that sometimes happens with these these kinds of unexplained massive changes. They have seen this a lot in pop culture. They've seen it a lot in cultures throughout you know, the modern era. Where somebody might come up with an, uh, an invention. And someone else will come up with a similar one right around the same time. Yet those people are not connected and the ideas don't get shared. They basically say that if an idea gets thrown out there into the collective, it's just thrown out there, it's floating around, eventually someone's going to resonate with it soon enough and it's going to be pulled down and someone's going to come up with that idea. And it's sort of a similar concept to what they're hypothesizing happened with this monkey population was that enough of them knew it so the organism connected physically or non-physically, just like quantum entanglement, the entire population learned this skill. Now, metaphysics, like I said, it can have a lot of variables that could change the entire legend of this experiment, Um, which is why a lot of people challenge and discredit metaphysics because uh, it can have some of these variables that I think some people are afraid to bring up because it sort of destroys the mysticism. For me, I just want to know the truth, along with like a lot of different, you can go down the whole conspiracy hole, but most of the time when people come up with a conspiracy theory, it's the what ifs. And I think in most cases where it's a really bad conspiracy, the cons- all conspiracy theorists hope that they're wrong. They, they most likely want the mainstream narrative to be the true one, but you always have to ask the questions. And when you ask the questions of some of these metaphysical concepts, um, some can be disproven through some good objective investigating, but some of them can't. So when they can't, you have to consider that as a possibility. But a lot of people will try to discredit metaphysics because it also goes against what they believe. It's their established belief system. And that can be scary to some people. It's scary for those in power because knowledge is power. And if the knowledge that they have and they've invested themselves in it for so long, their entire life, they've taught others this skill, whether it's in university or or otherwise their entire lives, they may be written books about it. And if a study or something comes out that disproves it and makes it all completely untrue, think about how threatening that could be to a person. And if a lot of these ideas and concepts stem from the progression of things like metaphysics or theories and hypotheses that create some critical thinking, you can see how this could be a threat to people who have tenure in university or other areas that they're supposedly the authority on something. And they may not want to have those viewpoints or paradigms changed because they will no longer be relevant. They will no longer be the authority on the subject. Their relevance, their reverence, everything that people hold them on a pedestal for would dissipate. And that could be very earth shattering to a lot of people. To me, I guess I understand this from a very egoic viewpoint, but I really can't understand it from an ethical or moral point of view. From my years doing the museum stuff, I had a very close friend who worked in the archaeological field who said that new discoveries in archaeology are often suppressed because of just these reasons. But when something that is literally written in stone, like archaeology, um, and it can't be explained through traditional means, like the watermarks on the Sphinx, this is the one that really gets me the most. The watermarks on the Sphinx that they have really um, had this come to commonplace, that it's common knowledge now. 
Um, but the, the Sphinx was supposedly built 4,500 years ago. And there was no significant water anywhere around that time or ever since that time in that region. And there wasn't until you go back 13,000 years. And on that Sphinx, there are vertical watermarks that basically signify huge amounts of rain ran down the sides of this thing and created like vertical canyons. And the only way that can happen is through water. It does not happen through sand erosion. So you have to go back 13,000 years for that structure to actually have been in place and receive that water erosion, which is sort of coincidental because the time frame of that is about halfway of the precession of the equinox where um, the climate could have been completely different in that area. And it also times in perfectly with the civil falls of civilizations like Atlantis and Lymeria. And there's possibility that our timeline is not what we originally thought it was, just like when we thought the earth was flat. And when Copernicus displaced the earth as the center of the known universe, everyone freaked. They didn't believe him. Or like when we discovered that that cloud in the night sky that we called the Andromeda Nebula back then was actually an entirely new galaxy once we developed telescopes strong enough to see it. It was a complete paradigm shift. People thought back then that the Milky Way galaxy was the universe. Like they thought that was the size of the universe. And then we discovered there was another one right nearby. Was this another universe? And then as technology advanced, we realized that we're literally, our galaxy is a speck among billions of other galaxies out there. Um, trillions, really. I mean, there's we have no way of knowing how many are out there. But that just changed an entire paradigm of how we look at things. And some people didn't want to accept these changes at first. People were potentially killed over their ideologies or their, just these theories. They'd make an observation, a scientific observation about something and then potentially lose their life for it. Or, I mean, we've seen it for so long that people have been hugely ridiculed and had their lives ruined even in modern times with this whole thing with alien life. Um, and for a lot of people for such a long time, their lives were ruined. They were cast uh, you know cast out of their their societal groups people thought they were nuts and even now talking about it is it still feels kind of funky you know sometimes i'll bring it up in conversation because a lot of information is just coming out now and i'll bring it up in conversation and i'll still get sort of like uncomfortable twists and turns from people like oh boy he's going off the deep end on this one again but when you have a year like 2020 and you have one article in the New York Times where the Pentagon, the, our military foundation, admits that there are vehicles that were not made of this earth that they have evidence of. And it's on the front page of the New York Times. But 2020 was so off the wall that no one paid attention. And then this other one that I just saw recently, my friend Ben Carroll just pointed this out to me. Uh, we talked about it on the episode a couple weeks ago about um, a security chief from Israel talking about how we have been a part of uh, a federation or a group of several different civilizations that have been coming here, they've been working with us, and slow disclosure has been coming because the human race couldn't really take the shock that they were, um, you know, not the only ones out there. And still, even to this day, it's most likely a thing because people can't accept that huge of a paradigm shift. Although, in this new COVID relief bill, I'm recording this the you know 3rd of January, in this new COVID relief bill, we have a 180-day countdown for the government to release all their UFO documents or something ridiculous like that has anything to do with COVID. But that was slid into the 5,000 pages of the billions of dollars that we're giving away to foreign countries and yada yada. We have now 180-day disclosure. I think it's June of 2021 uh, is the due date for when disclosure is going to happen, which I thought was bizarre. But you talk about it, and it's still a really hard paradigm to even – bring up in conversation. I brought it up at work one time with a colleague and they were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, go to the New York Times and figure it out for yourself and you can come to me later and talk about it. And then they did. And they were like, wow, you know, at first I thought like, what are you drinking in your coffee this morning? And then they they read it and then they had to come back. Like they have to hear it from an official source. They can't trust their gut. They can't trust some of the people who have had this information, um, who approach with very credible means until it comes from a quote-unquote official source, even official sources who are caught lying all the time. Um, they won't believe it until it's printed in some newspaper or something. But yeah, I'm going completely off the rails in a way, again, like I always do. But my point is that um, disclosure of this new paradigm is going to change the way that we look at the world again. Um, 
you know, but we are such a young civilization. We have a hard time. We are very primitive. We think we are the cat's ass when it comes to, you know, the top of the food chain here on earth. But, um, you know, we have our fancy iPhones and we have, you know, electric cars. We have this, we have that. But really our, our human species was drawing on caves, you know, a hundred thousand years ago. We've only been around on two legs, less than 200,000 years. And really we didn't even leave this planet until the sixties. And we have just been unable to accept the fact that there may be other cultures who are potentially millions of years more progressed than us. Um, you know, what if they had their whole cave drawing thing 10 million years ago and they've just been out there cruising the stars for who knows how long. Um, and they're watching us primitive little beings fight with each other and, and, poison each other and do all the stupid crap that we do. Um, I wouldn't want to really talk to us either. If I was them, I'd keep, hard to keep my distance until we could prove that we were actually worthy of talking to. Uh, but this paradigm shift, it's it, it has to be accepted as a huge collective before it's accepted as a whole. Now, you can make that argument that that is you know, social conditioning, that um, just like what I said, the, the public shaming of people, the uncomfortable squirms of every everything um, those will no longer happen. So people will more acceptedly talk about it and then it becomes more accepted as fact. But, um, you know, it, it could be that it could be the mass consciousness stuff. And that's what we'll dive into a little bit more. But, you know, even back to Christopher Columbus's time when he was going to go sail off, nobody would fund him, you know, and they just thought he was going to fall off the edge of the earth if they funded the ships that he wanted to prove that, the, you know, he could find a easier trade route. And people had a really hard time letting that go once that whole idea was accepted. Um, there were so many people who still fought it, and it takes years, sometimes generations, to let go of the old paradigms. But just think about the things that we still hold on to that we do not let go of as a species. I mean, imagine what will happen if some of these more conceptual concepts, the stuff that some people aren't willing to accept, are no longer cast aside and they're accepted. Or what about the things that we need to let go of and they're cast off and they're pushed out of our society permanently like, you know, certain divisions of religion uh, and politics. If we let those divisions go, those primitive divisions, and we stop accepting them as social norms, we stop accepting that war is okay, that we're going to kill each other, our own species through war, that people having uh, massive amounts of money while some people have nothing to even eat. When we stop accepting those things as truths, our paradigms will shift on those as well. And really, right now, I kind of feel like maybe a part of what's going on in our world, how everything's being shaken to its core, is because it's really not working. And we're in the midst of a major, major paradigm shift on so many different levels. When things shift out of that and we start to see a new understanding of it all, Enough of us will understand it and get it, and the world will shift into this new view of existence. Unfortunately, in the past, we've seen this happen through a lot of great conflict. Um, shifts don't often just come all at once in this one huge revelation. Often there are two or more competing ideals that often get in the way of a worldview. And those, those, world, those, those ideals will just sit there and battle with each other and just prevent the the new ideas from coming through. Thomas Kuhn was one of the uh, one of the best philosophers that I've looked into. He was an American philosopher who uh, I read so much of his work and listened to some of his concepts over the years. And he actually coined the phrase, well, he coined the phrase, but he really popularized the phrase paradigm shift. And he said that a whole new worldview is the consensus or sum of competing ideologies. Since you can't just judge a paradigm by the facts alone, because who makes the facts? You know, we have to look at a totality of all of the circumstances behind a paradigm. Science can often be and is often very biased. So if we just look at the facts of certain experiments, experiments can be set up to have a certain determination by the person uh, who's doing the experiment. They work out in the manner in which the observer wants to see things. And, you know, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, um, they can be set up a certain way so that certain facts come out to favor a, a predicted outcome. And this makes the study of metaphysics so important. 
Metaphysics takes every possibility, whether it's the constraints of a popular worldview, and it will bring in all of the facts and concepts into uh, a certain understanding, and it can maybe challenge the worldview. And through scientific revolution, we can sort of make a change at how we see things. You know, like right now, I feel like a political revolution is occurring, you know, where people are realizing that our current system is broken. We have lobbyists who are essentially bribing politicians. We have two-party systems that agree that spending our tax dollars on foreign aid is more important than giving taxpayers some relief, you know, and that's all ridiculous. Um, you know, the whole denial of election interference, no matter the scale, there's shady stuff that went on. Um, and you know, whether it benefited one side or the other, you know, this stuff has happened over the years. You always have to look into it and our, pol our political system is just completely screwed. Um, I feel like there's a spiritual revolution that's going on too. You know, that there's a lot of people looking beyond religion and looking more into spirituality and consciousness and what that means deep inside of them, what resonates to them and no one else. And all of that really should make everyone step back and unplug from the mainstream stuff and really figure out what's most important to them and what they resonate with and not react at all because all of that stuff is out there to program people for a certain end result. We have a nonstop fear factory right now. It comes out in movies, the newspaper, and, and you know mainstream news especially. They just they disgust me. I never pay attention to them anymore. Um, you know, Even the biggest efforts... In, in what they put out in movies lately, like pretty much every movie that comes out has some sort of undertones to it. They have a lot of horror movies and stuff out there. And, you know, you really got to ask yourself why. It all keeps everybody in a state of fear. And you really need to take a strong standpoint against that fact. If you're being told to look in one direction all the time, you need to stop and try and look in the other direction and say, what is it that they're trying not to get me to see? If they're trying to divide everybody, you have to ask why. If they're trying to get you distracted on a certain thing, you have to ask why. If right now the paradigm is fear, you have to ask yourself why and stay away from it. If the paradigm is trying to make a division a normal thing, you have to ask why. But anyways, back to the normal point of the episode. We as a species have the same ability that the, these monkeys had, that schools of fish have, and we've seen it repeated over and over and over again through different species in different times. We've seen it repeated with our own species on the planet. We've seen it what happens with us. And, you know, that even comes down to the Schumann resonance. I've wanted the opportunity to talk about that. And that's an episode in and of itself. Um, I have people who are way more knowledgeable in it. But I can summarize what the Schumann resonance actually is because we've talked about it a few times on the show. Um, so the Schumann resonance of the planet Earth relates to not just the earth physically and its environment, but it also relates to human mass consciousness. So if you're new to this stuff and you don't know exactly what it is, think of the surface of the earth and then the upper atmosphere, right? Basically where the atmosphere meets what you'd want to call space. Think of that as an echo chamber. And the Schumann resonance is that constant echo of electromagnetic fields going between the top of the atmosphere and the surface of the earth. And the actual frequency of that is 7.83 hertz. And this echo chamber, we have all sorts of stuff flying around there. We have radio signals, we have lightning, we have the electromagnetic field of the 7 billion conscious humans on this planet. And all of that stuff is bouncing around in there. And there's fluctuations in that field. Sometimes it has stronger emanations than others. And they've done measurements at certain times, and they've actually had some spikes in the Schumann resonance preceding an earthquake. Um, they actually show them very frequently having uh, big spikes during mass worldwide coordinated meditation events. It's amazing when those things happen uh, during a meditation event because it shows directly that our consciousness reflects on that Schumann resonance field. One of the ones I remember most significantly was when they did a reading of the Schumann resonance uh, in around the time of 9-11. So there's actually a study that you can look up on this. Um, it, it's actually a National Geographic study. I can't remember the name of it, but I do remember it was right around the time of 9-11. I think it was in the first year. So it was either 2001 or 2002. And they study the fluctuations that affected all things, right down to computer algorithms when 9-11 happened in the hours right after the first plane struck the tower. 
But when they got deeper into the study, they started to really dig and they found that these, these major changes that they could see in these, these fields actually occurred. There's major shifts in the hours after the event, but they saw that the event actually, the changes actually happened before the event. Things started to really change before the event actually even occurred. And that can be kind of explained by the concept that we are all connected like a huge brain because neurons in the brain have gaps between them, but they operate like a huge Wi-Fi network. And if humans are like neurons of a huge organism, we have some sort of connection between all of us. The strangest thing about that study was that they discovered the huge fluctuations um, that happened. Of course, after the event, you could you could explain that one away because of media coverage affecting the collective. Everybody's seeing this happen on their um, on their TVs. They were listening to everything. They were looking things up at the internet. Back then, the internet was very limited uh, in its scope and scales, nothing like what it is now. But the the biggest point of that one was that four to five hours before the crash happened, they started to see, they saw the major changes happen, obviously, after the crash. But they started to see fluctuations four to five hours before the first crash even occurred. So something that was in the field caused huge major fluctuations right up until the first crash. Similar to, like I said, what the animals can predict something happening, whether it's a tsunami or an earthquake or something, they can predict that coming. So, you know, what happened with us? What did we predict when 9-11 happened? What happened to the collective in those hours leading up to the event? There's so much scientific support that really solidifies these theories. So you have to ask yourself how important it is to us to govern our thoughts and our feelings and what we observe and what we consume. Because if the media is feeding us nothing but fear and despair and disconnection and separation, what is the resonance inside of that field going to be? But if we can focus ourselves on something else, and more importantly, try to spread that on a massive scale, what could that lead to instead? You have to ask why they're trying so hard to do the opposite. Is it because it sells? I mean, fear could just be more marketable than anything else. I get it. People get addicted to fear. They want to see, you know, what's the latest death toll. And whenever some of these big events happen, I remember 9-11, you couldn't stop seeing those images play on the screen over and over and over again. Is it because it sells or is it programming? I don't know. That's still to be debated. But also, I have dug in my studies. I've, I've gone down a lot of rabbit holes. I've gone into a lot of the um, declassified CIA stuff on psyops and where all that stuff leads. And there's so much programming and psychological stuff that they have studied over the years in, in psychological warfare and how that relates to the, the populace at large. I mean, so much stuff um, that I wouldn't be surprised if, if all this stuff was predictive programming to, um, you know, keep people in a certain mindset. It blows my mind. But the importance of this information of a collective resonating all at the same time is really legitimate. We are connected like a huge organism and it's very imperative that we put out there what we want to see. We try and spread it like a good virus and we make sure that we feed into the machine what we want to spread. I mean, I really have to tell you, if you're one of those people who has tried to quote unquote wake others up, you know, with the matrix is the analogy of the blue pill and the red pill. If you try to red pill people, which mean you're trying to feed them bits of truth, that's going to wake them up. It can often create more of a separation from what the message is that you're trying to say. So you have to pick those battles. And I've learned that one myself. And when it comes to a lot of these, these concepts, especially some of the paradigms that we're shifting from, a lot of people don't want to wake up. They're so hopelessly dependent on the system, like the movie says, that they will fight to protect what it is they believe, and they don't want to know anything other than that. I've actually was told by a relative this summer when some of the subjects of some of the, the, the child stuff that's been coming out in the news, and some of the people who were documented to have been involved – this particular relative didn't want to hear it. They literally said, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear this about those people. I'm just so sick of the negativity. It's like, yes, I know. It's really not a pleasant subject to talk about. And, you know, do you run the risk of being uninformed or focusing on all that negative, like I'm basically telling you all not to do? 
I think you have to just cut it off and limit it, but you really can't just stick your head in the sand because that's basically the equivalent of the people who are digging their heels in and saying, oh, no, no, if you sail off in that direction for too long, you're going to fall off the edge of the earth. It's the same thing to say, well, no, I don't want to know that this certain celebrity potentially and most likely did some really horrendous stuff because I love his movies. It's beyond that. And we have to at least keep our minds open to look at some of these concepts, look at some of the things that people are hypothesizing, some of the evidence that is coming out and make our own best informed judgments. But I've also, like I said, I've also discovered that sometimes uh, people just aren't ready and they're never going to be. And I would wait for people to come to you instead. But what people should do maybe a little more often than not, instead of always posting those sort of truth bombs, although it is important to keep people informed, balance it out with some positive stuff because there's so much fear. There's so much negativity out there. And if that's what our collective is constantly focusing on, because even the conspiracy theories, even the the truth bombs you try to drop on people, they're earth shattering, they're jarring. Some people may not have the ability to really accept them. So then what? It creates more disharmony. It creates more distrust. It creates all the negative. So we really have to balance out a lot of this stuff with some of the positive. Because once we do that, once we hit a critical mass point of maybe realizing that we create all of this, that we are really the ones in control and not a handful of elites. When we realize that we can live life in a way that is the best for us all, not just a select few, that becomes our new norm. That becomes the paradigm shift. And that becomes the way of a new being. And wouldn't that be great that we completely destroy the market of fear and dread and despair? I mean, honestly, that's why I watch and listen to what I watch and listen to, whatever it comes to music, um, TV, social media. I, I don't ever watch violent movies anymore, uh, maybe other than like a, you know, Avengers type thing. Um, but really, like all the movies that we watched, like when we were in the 80s, it's just violent, violent stuff. Um, all the horror movies and stuff like that. Uh, I never uh, I never was really into those outside of like adolescence. And even now, um, I don't I don't even want to see the commercials for that kind of stuff. I'm very, very mindful of every single thing that I put into my my world, whether it's observations, whether it's through my ears, my eyes, stuff that I put into my body and consume for nutrition, all of it. So it's really, really critical that we do all of that because who knows where all of that eventually leads. But like with this experiment, those animals spread that new skill to the others and then it spread beyond that some way somehow it spread on a large mass scale and if we do the same thing if we start to spread some of the ideas and concepts if we start to spread the opposite of the fear and of the division if we can work better with each other and not see how much we're being manipulated against each other imagine the progress that we could roll back especially we can Stop the progress that I feel like some of the people in this world are trying to make on this division. Really, I feel like it all comes down to what this episode really is about and its connection. Using the word love, love is thought of as an emotion. Love should really be thought of as a connection. You can have a love for your fellow human being, not have a love like you would for a child, Or have the love like you would for a spouse or a sexual partner or something like that. But the connection that it really can mean, that is the opposite of what's being put out there right now. So like I said, sometimes when things are going in a certain direction, you got to look in the other direction and figure out why they don't want us going that way. Let's aim for more of that connection. All right, my friends, I'm going to wrap this one up before uh, I go. I'm going to play this song by Soul Rising. This one's a new single from 2020 called Super Soul. Also, go check out my man Brandon, a.k.a. DJ Soul Rising. Go check out some of his stuff. He was a very busy guy in 2020. He's had a lot of activity. Uh, Definitely took that downtime that we were all forced to have at a certain point to reorganize our lives. And he used it to create some really great new content and music. So go check it out. Go on Spotify. Um, I know he's got a great station on there. Um, I'll try and find the, uh, the actual station link and I will put that in the show notes. Until next time. 
connect to those around you in meaningful ways, regardless of the physical connection. We have that connection at large, whether we realize it or not. So we really should take advantage of it. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.